In the name of God who creates, redeems, and sanctifies. Amen. Please sit. So you will have noticed this morning, I'm sure, that things are a little bit different. Our service begins a little bit different, and um, certainly our color has changed. Welcome to the first Sunday in the season of Lent. Whether you received your ashes on Wednesday or not, today comes for all of us. Actually, today, technically, like every other Sunday, is actually a feast day, so it sort of actually doesn't count, but it's within the season, so that's what we call it, the first Sunday in Lent. Lent, of course, is a time for reflection and self-discipline and spiritual practices. It is a somber season, a serious season, as we prepare ourselves for Easter, a time when we are meant to examine ourselves and our lives and our actions and our patterns and our routines and our relationships, our complicity in systems that are unjust, our ignorance and blindness to things that are cruel and unfair, the ways in which we benefit from some of those things that others don't. Some of you commented to me on Wednesday night actually about how serious that Ash Wednesday liturgy is, how the prayers almost sort of beat us up a little bit. And it's true, they, they do. They're not intended to beat us up, but they are intended to really invite us into a serious time of reflection and self-awareness to really make us stop and look at what's happening around us and have the ability to put words on it, to name it. Lent is a time for us to look at ourselves and our lives and to be honest with ourselves and with God about who we are, about where we can improve, about what's going well and maybe what isn't, about when we feel close to God and about when we're very good at pushing God away, about how well we love our neighbors and about how sometimes we also hurt them and push them away. We don't enter into this season so that we can feel badly about ourselves. In fact, if you were here Wednesday night or if you joined us online, I hope you heard me very clearly say how very much God loves you and how amazing it is that God made you out of the dust of the earth and the dust of the stars. How literally awesome it is that God can do that. So we don't enter into this season to feel badly about ourselves. Rather, we enter into it to grow in our faith, to remove some of the obstacles that we sometimes put in our own path and the obstacles that sometimes the world puts in our own path, to let go of things that are hurting us and others and to learn to walk more closely with Jesus. And we do all of that for the sake of love so that when Easter comes, we are ready to receive the joy and the promise of fulfillment and the abundance and eternal life that we find on that day. So we do all of this reflection and fasting and sacrificing and intentionally good things in this season for those reasons and also because of what Jesus is signaling to us in the gospel today. It's a short and very simple text from Mark today It's a bit long elsewhere, actually, but here Jesus emerges from relative anonymity to be baptized by John in the Jordan, and then God speaks to Jesus and says, you are my son, the beloved, in you I am well pleased. And then the Spirit immediately drives Jesus out into the wilderness for 40 days where he's tempted and tested by Satan, and the text tells us that angels wait on him 
And by the time he comes back to civilization, John is arrested and Jesus picks up where John left off. He literally picks up this message of good news and repentance from John and begins his own public ministry. It's a very short little passage, but like it's typical of Mark, there's a lot sort of crammed into that very short passage. And there's only one word today that I really want us to focus on, and it's the word baptize. In Greek, it's bautizo. When Mark uses this word, it's important for us to remember that he is not thinking about baptism the way that we do, right? He doesn't have 2,000 years of church history sort of behind him. He's not thinking about fonts. He's not thinking about bowls. He's not thinking about sweet little shells that we use to put water on babies' heads while they wear their white gowns. He's not thinking about that at all. There's no sacrament in his mind. So when Mark is referring to this, he's talking about a ritual that Jesus would have known well, where someone is fully immersed in the water, a ritual that has its roots in Jewish ritual washing that would have led to purity. And and that's actually what Paul is referring to in the epistle today too, right? It's the idea that sin is washed away. The things that make people impure in Jewish law is washed away. And in the Greek, the word also has a very specific definition that I have come to like very much. You can translate this word into English using the word overwhelmed. So so please understand, it's not tied to our understanding of baptism at all. There's several different definitions for this word, and it just so happens that the one that I really like is overwhelmed. Jesus was overwhelmed by the water overwhelmed by the water in the Jordan River. So baptism then in some ways is sort of about being overwhelmed by the water and by the grace of God. And you know, to be fair, in English it's an interesting word, isn't it? To be overwhelmed is to be defeated by something or someone, often using force. It can be linked to strong emotion to feeling something and maybe sometimes feeling something that you don't actually want to feel as strongly as you feel it. There can be in some sense a a sense of helplessness almost in it. You're overwhelmed by a feeling that you can't control, that you can't manage. And so that leads into the idea too that sometimes you're overwhelmed by something that is too much, that you can't resist. So when Mark uses this word, he's giving us the sense that what's happening to Jesus in the Jordan is a very big deal. He's not just jumping in to sort of cool off. He's not just going under the water for a minute. And he's certainly not being sprinkled, although if you've watched me do a baptism, this is part of the reason I make a big mess when I do it. He's not just being sprinkled by a little bit of water here and there. Jesus is overwhelmed by God in the water and by what God has planned for him, I'm sure and by what God is expecting of him, and also, I would bet, by what God is doing for him. If there were pieces of Jesus that maybe wanted to do something else, I imagine that in this moment they are overwhelmed and overcome. If there are pieces of him that maybe are unsure, in this overcome. And when he comes out out of the water, what Mark is telling us in this very short gospel passage is that he suddenly is ready He is filled with God's grace in this moment. He has been marked and claimed in this fantastic and really sort of intimate moment. 
And notice there are other gospels, like in Matthew's gospel, it feels a little bit more like God is saying to the crowd, this is my beloved, right? He's, he's pointing to Jesus and trying to make a point. But here, the text leads us to believe that he is talking to Jesus. And if everybody else hears, well, then fine. But what he's saying directly and intimately is, you are my son. You are the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. So when Jesus comes up out of that water, he is a different person. He has yielded his will and his identity in some ways, and he has been claimed by God. And it's important here that then the very next thing that happens is that the Spirit, also a part of God, right, a person of God, drives him out into the wilderness. So these two things are intimately connected. And here the context is very important. Mark, like all of the writers of these texts, is trying to tell us something important. So if you were listening to this text with ancient ears, you would understand that Mark is signaling, just in this one sort of sentence, a great battle between good and evil, between God and Satan, between God's people and God's mission, and the wilderness. It's important in this bit that the Spirit sends Jesus out so that God's sending Jesus into the wilderness to contend with Satan, to be tested, as frankly would have any religious teacher, any redemptive leader. This, this period of trial and temptation is something that would have, would have been important for anyone who had a story like this. And there are two categories out in the wilderness. There's Jesus and the angels on one side, and there's Satan and the wild animals on the other. And the wild animals here would have represented really just about anything that isn't domesticated. Everything that isn't palatable or house trained or safe. Everything that can't be controlled by people. Everything that feels dangerous. And when he conquers this battle, he goes back into civilization to try to save God's people to try to save the world, to fight sort of the next part of the battle. So the text sort of builds line by line on itself. One thing leads to the next. And what we need to see in sort of Mark's words is that Jesus has been overwhelmed, and that was his preparation. He cannot be moved. He will not be swayed. He is the one coming into the world, the one who can defeat Satan, the one who can send away demons, the one who has command over creation and all that's in it because all of it came into being through him. And so Mark signals to us that the next part of this battle takes place in the world of people, in civilization, which is just as wild as the wilderness. And Jesus begins to go around picking up after John, saying, the time has come, God is acting, the kingdom of God has come near to you. And what he means is, I have come near to you. I am the kingdom incarnate. I am the way and the truth and the life, and I have come near to you so that you too might be overwhelmed, so that you too might be won over by the power and the love and the mercy of God, so that you too might find yourself overcome with what is possible by what is right and true and good. We miss this sense sometimes because for us, most of us probably don't remember our baptisms. 
and if you do, I'm willing to bet that it didn't happen fully submerged in the Jordan River. And so we miss sometimes the overwhelming power of this ritual. It still happens. We just don't see it the same way. But in your baptism, even if you don't remember, you were claimed in the same way. You have been given the grace and strength to do what God calls you to do and to be who God calls you to be. The kingdom of God came near to you in that moment, in the spirit that came down and claimed you and marked you as Christ's own forever. And the truth is that we find that kingdom come near to us each time we gather around this table. That should be a reminder to us, to you, that you are a citizen of a different kingdom and that that kingdom wants very much to overwhelm you and your life so that you, like Jesus, might change the world with the power of love. It sounds huge because it is. And that ultimately is what this whole season of Lent is about. It's not about giving up chocolate because, hey, look at me, I can white knuckle it and give up chocolate for 40 days, it's so great. Not about that. If you are going to make a sacrifice, it should be a sacrifice that makes you better, that makes you kinder. If you're going to give up something, whatever it is, whether it's smoking or drinking or gambling or gossiping or whining or complaining, whatever it is, you know what it is. We all know what it is in our lives that are obstacles, that hinder us. If you're going to give up something, give up something that will make you more aware more present, more compassionate, more loving. Remove something that keeps you from being your full self in the presence of God. Or do something else. Add something to your life, a spiritual practice, a kindness each day, something that puts good back into the world around us, something that will run up the score on this ancient battle that Mark is talking about, this battle that rages on. Now, some of you might say to me in our forum after church, you know, Marissa, I really don't buy this battle between good and evil. I just, I don't buy it. You told us Mark believes in this apocalyptic Messiah who's come to win this cosmic battle that's been raging from the beginning of time. I just don't buy it. That's fine. I'll, I'll tell you, I think that's fine. Mark definitely believes in that, and that's what he's after in the gospel. But if you don't believe that this morning, that's okay. But what I'm sure that we can agree on is that there are many other things that are related to that. The battle within all of us between right and wrong, the battle in the world between war and peace, between hate and love, between selfishness and altruism, between generosity and greed, between abundance and scarcity. We see these play out, each one of us, every day in big and small ways all the time. And I think we can agree, I hope we can agree that for so many people this morning, the world is a scary place. And for those of us who have the comfort we have and the peace that we have, this season calls us to be grateful and then to figure out how to help other people have that same comfort and peace, to show compassion, to fill the hungry with good things, to level the playing field, and not even to even the score, but to forget about the score, 
to put the needs of our neighbors first. Surely we can agree that the world around us, our communities, our families, our houses, could all benefit from kindness and goodness and love. From people who have done the interior work on themselves to be whole, whether that's prayer or a therapist or coaching or hanging out with your priest or sitting in silence with God, whatever it is, surely we can agree that whole, healthy people who are thoughtful, who work hard not to hurt anyone else, can be part of that movement to overwhelm the world around us with love. You are not the beloved. And thank God for that. His road was very difficult. That role has been filled. But you are God's beloved. And you are loved deeply and intimately and endlessly. And at your baptism, the same spirit descended and claimed you and marked you for particular work, for a particular kind of life. So I hope in this season that you will let that truth and the love of that moment wash over you. Let it overwhelm you. Allow yourself in this season to go all the way under the water, to give yourself over, to question, to wonder, to pray, to reflect. Do whatever it is that will help you hear God better and follow Jesus more nearly. Do whatever it is that will help you to love God and your neighbor and yourself more fully.